I'm driving back in this rental car to go back to campus, and I hear it on the radio. Joel Anderson was a freshman in college when he heard that notorious B.I.G., Biggie Smalls, had been murdered. 24-year-old rap artist known as Notorious B.I.G., Christopher Wallace, was shot early Sunday morning and later died of gunshot wounds at nearby Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. It was March 1997. And at first I thought it was a joke. I'm like, what? Because this is only a few months after Tupac had gotten killed. So I'm like, this is a joke. This must be some sort of a prank. There's no way that this actually happened. But by the time I got home and was able to see the national news or whatever, it was true. The rapper known as Biggie Smalls was shot several times as he sat in his Chevy Suburban early this morning outside the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles. Biggie Smalls was only 24 years old when he was killed. His loss affected millions of hip-hop fans. Joel was one of those fans. He idolized the New York rapper as a teenager. He's now a journalist. He's researched Biggie's life and murder extensively. And he still feels the loss of the hip-hop legend. It made me sad, obviously. I mean, there's a selfish part of you, like, man, I'm never going to hear a Biggie album again, you know? As I'm older, I'm like, wow, there's no need for that to have happened, that it didn't have to happen that way. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. On March 9th, 1997, 25 years ago this week, the notorious B.I.G. was gunned down in public. Today on the show, we're telling a story about Biggie and Tupac, but not the one you may have heard. This isn't just a story about hip-hop icons, warring coasts, and unsolved murders. It's a story about two friends, at one point really good ones, who had a falling out, one that ended in bloodshed and defined a generation. That's coming up. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Before we dive into our story today... I feel like I need to answer the question. Simone, you rock with Biggie or with Tupac? And listen, that's a tough one to answer. I'm from the West Coast, so I've always been a little more partial to Tupac, California love and all that. But now I live in Brooklyn, so I'm like, well, maybe I'm a Biggie girl now. But if I'm really honest, the Tupac-Biggie era was like a shade before my time. So for today's show, I talked to two journalists and big-time Biggie fans to help me tell this story. Joel Anderson. Hey, nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on. Who we just heard from at the top of the show. He's the host of the third season of the podcast, Slow Burn, Biggie and Tupac. And I also talked to Justin Tinsley. So I'm just really honored to be on here with you all. 
He's the author of a forthcoming book about the rapper. It was all a dream, Biggie and the world that made him. Throughout the episode, we're going to hear them go back and forth about what they learned from their in-depth research and help shed a new light on one of hip-hop's most infamous stories. Most notorious, if you will. Biggie's music started hitting the airwaves in 1993. That year, his song Party and Bullshit was included in the soundtrack for the film Who's the Man, starring Dr. Dre and Ed Lover. Party and Bullshit was huge. It propelled Biggie into the spotlight, grabbing the attention of music lovers, but it also got people in the industry talking. One of those people was platinum-selling rapper and movie star Tupac Shakur. Apparently, Tupac couldn't get enough of Big's track. He kept playing it, he kept playing it, and Tupac loved the, the, the vivid lyrics, the storytelling, and just the command of Biggie's voice on the song. He just kept listening to it. This is Justin Tinsley. He says that Tupac was such a fan of Biggie's that Pac just showed up at Big's hotel when the New York rapper was visiting L.A. in the spring of 1993. And Tupac was like, yo, I heard you were in town. You do Party and Bullshit. That's my favorite song right now. Let's just, let's link up and let's hang out. Legend has it, Tupac had already met Biggie in Atlanta on the set of his film Poetic Justice. But Tupac wanted to get to know Biggie more. So when he found him outside that L.A. hotel, Tupac invited Biggie over to his house. So they just smoked a ton of weed and uh, they, they freestyled for like damn near an hour back and forth. And then Tupac brings out a bag of guns and he and Biggie are just running around in his backyard just with empty guns, basically playing like cops and robbers. It, it was childlike innocence. But before Biggie was running around with Tupac, he grew up Christopher Wallace in New York's bed neighborhood in the 70s and 80s. His father left when Biggie was young, so he was raised by his mother, who pushed him to excel in school. Joel says this is despite his public persona. This is the thing that is sort of funny to me about Biggie and, you know, the idea that he's a gangster or whatever. He was also a private school kid. He was literally an altar boy, went to church and was a very good student growing up. But when Chris was a teenager, he turned away from that path. You know how it is. You know, kids get a little older. There's influences in their neighborhood and he started to get that wandering eye, the allure, the pull of the streets, you know, the older kids that are selling drugs on the corner or whatever. He dropped out of high school and sold drugs. This was in the 80s and 90s, the height of the crack epidemic in New York. And it was during that time that Biggie got serious about rapping. Some local DJs heard what Big was spitting, and it was pretty clear to them that this is what he was made for. There's this great candid video of him and he's rapping in Brooklyn and the wordplay, the charisma, all that stuff is right there. And so some people in this neighborhood, they find out like, oh, this kid over, he can kind of go, you know, he can, he can rap a little bit. And so they started making tapes, man. There were a lot of mixtapes from a lot of artists being passed around. It's how early career rappers and producers got their stuff out there. But Biggie stood out. His big break came when a local DJ put one of those tapes into the hands of a writer at The Source magazine. 
That writer put Biggie in a 1992 feature about unsigned talent. And it's just got all this great stuff on it. And Puffy reads the Source magazine. Puffy, a.k.a. Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, Sean Combs. But back then, just Puffy. At the time, he was a VP at Uptown Records. He asked to be put in touch with Biggie. And he's like, hey, man, that guy that you're talking about, let me hear his music. I want to know who you're talking about. And that's, I mean, that's literally how it happened. 1993 was a breakout year for Biggie. And as his career was exploding, he was also establishing himself among his peers in hip hop. Peers like Tupac. Tupac respected the fact that, you know, Biggie was this great lyricist and he had such a command with his flow and he really lived in the streets of New York, whereas Biggie, he appreciated the revolutionary aspect of Tupac. He appreciated the the fact that he honestly marched to the beat of his own drum. He was a man's man in a sense. After the two played cops and robbers at Tupac's house in L.A., they kept in touch, kept meeting up. Biggie would crash on Tupac's couch when he went out to L.A., and Tupac would always let Biggie know when he was coming to town. In other words, they were tight. You know, once you get with Big and Pop, you know, you got to roll up, you know what I'm saying, smoke something, get your drink on, get your food together. This is Chico Del Vec, one of Biggie's longtime friends and a member of Junior Mafia. So when they got together to meet each other, it was like a hangout in the studio. And, you know, from the studio, might go to a little club, back to the studio. You know what I'm saying? One time, you know, we linked up in Pop and Big in Manhattan. And Pop was like, yo, I got to do a performance. And Big was like, where? He was like, Madison Square Garden. He was like, what? So we went with Tupac up there, and Tupac, you know, came out and put Big on stage. He was like, yo, Tupac is here, yo. Tupac and Biggie freestyled together at the iconic New York venue. This was at the 1993 Budweiser Superfest. But they weren't just industry friends. They hung out outside of shows, too. Like this one time, Tupac was in New York, and Biggie and Chico went to go see him. Chico and Biggie are on the block, and... Biggie's like, yo, go get, go get some flowers and go get, you know, the piece, which was a gun. Like, we're going uptown. We're going to see Tupac. And Chico was like, flowers? A gun? Tupac? Like, what is, like what's going on here? Biggie and Chico made their way to Tupac's hotel room to drop off the stuff. Long story short, Tupac had a date, hence the flowers. And the gun... Biggie told Chico, like, yo, give him, give him the piece. Because whenever Tupac would come to New York, Biggie would look out for him in terms of, like, protection, which was, again, part of their friendship, looking out for each other. Not only did Biggie look out for Tupac, he looked up to him, too. He reportedly even asked Tupac to be his manager instead of Puffy. But Tupac said no. Stay with Puff, he said. He'll make you a star. And that's exactly what happened. In 1994, Biggie released his first album, Ready to Die, through Puffy's new label, Bad Boy Entertainment. The album was packed with some of Biggie's most iconic songs, like Juicy and Big Papa, which reached number one on Billboard's rap chart. Joel remembers listening to Biggie's music and feeling like it captured what it was like to be young, those tumultuous, insecure years. 
a youth that Biggie was still very much experiencing at just 22 years old. You hear a lot of just youthful anguish and uncertainty in the music. And I'm like, man, that's the kind of stuff that you think about and talk about, you know, for 17 to 25, when the things that seem so urgent and so tragic and so pressing in your late teens and early 20s are actually, for the most part, not that big a deal. For Joel, his favorite song off Big's debut album embodies the youthful angst Biggie rapped about. There's a song called Suicidal Thoughts. And he starts off, when I die, fuck it, I want to go to hell. And, you know, (laughs) that song just sort of resonated to me. I was like, oh, man, you know, people don't like me, too. Like, maybe my friends aren't who they say they are. My parents are frustrated with me. I might be not living up to expectations or whatever. And I think that that spoke to me as much as anything else. Biggie was becoming a huge star. His songs were in heavy rotation on the radio. He started making more and more appearances, even popping up at MTV's 1995 spring break and his signature oversized black sunglasses, Kangol hat, and Kuji sweater. And in 1995, Ready to Die was certified double platinum. Biggie was on top. But in his friendship with Tupac, things would take a more painful turn. It's just sad. It's just sad how everything went to hell in a handbasket so quickly. After the break, the friendship between two young rappers sours and escalates into a coastal rivalry that would change the course of hip-hop. Welcome back. Before the break, we heard how Biggie and Tupac, two young rappers making it in the music industry, became friends. Real, running around the backyard, sleeping on each other's couches friends. So we're picking the story back up in November of 1994. Tupac had gotten into some legal trouble. He and two other men were on trial for sexual abuse, and he was waiting for a verdict to be delivered. He was growing increasingly paranoid and was suspicious of who he could trust. His legal bills were also piling up, and he was short on cash. So when he was asked to hop on a track with rapper Little Sean, he agreed. If you're racking your brain trying to remember this feature, don't, because it never happened. And here's why. It's the day of the recording session. Tupac is walking up to the studio in Manhattan, and he's crewed up. He's got three friends with him. As they walk up to the building, Pac hears his name being shouted from a balcony above. He looks up and sees Lil C's, a member of Biggie's rap group, Junior Mafia. Here's Chico, who was also there that night. He's like, yo, and Pac was like, oh, snap. And Pac was like, who that? And he was like, it's Lil C's. And he's like, oh, I'm Tupac. Yeah, yeah, where you going? He's like, yo, I'm coming around the corner, y'all. He was so happy. Biggie's in the studio. When he hears Tupac is outside, he tells C's to go let him in. And Big was like, what? Tupac down to C's like, yeah, son, Tupac and them niggas coming up the building. He's like, okay, cool. C's, yo, go downstairs, tell me, yo, what's up? Here's Justin again. Whatever apprehension Tupac had 
going into Quiet Studios that night immediately dissipated because he was like, oh man, like Biggs here, Caesar's here, all of my people are here. I feel good about this. But that good feeling is fleeting because as soon as Tupac enters the lobby of the building, he's ambushed. Three strange men are there waiting for him. They tell Pac and his crew to hand over their jewelry and get on the ground. Tupac, in Tupac fashion, resists, and the men shoot him five times. Tupac survives the shooting. The men rob him and his friends and flee the scene. And as the story goes, Tupac then drags himself upstairs to the studio, where he finds Puffy and some other rappers hanging out. As he looks around the room, telling them what happened, trying to figure out how this could have even gone down in the first place, Tupac notices no one will look him in the eyes. He also notices that they still all have their jewelry. Suspicious. He begins to think maybe his so-called friend Biggie has something to do with all this. At that point, Tupac questioned everybody. He questioned everybody. He felt like the only people that knew he was coming to the studio were the people who were already in the studio. And he was ambushed in a way that it was something like, okay, somebody knew Tupac was going to be here at that time. Because it it was basically a professional-style ambush. There's a photo from that night of Tupac giving the finger as a stretcher wheeled him out of the building. Chico says that gesture was meant for him and Biggie. We outside looking at him like, what the hell happened? He looked at us like, little finger in the air like, niggas trying to get me. Like, And Big like, yo, what's going on? What happened? Big was like, I don't know why he's giving me the middle finger, but that's my man. Like, we're super cool. Like, he got love for me. I got love for him. We're eventually going to talk about this. After he was shot, Tupac's paranoia grew. He started searching for clues that might implicate Biggie in his shooting. He grew suspicious as to why Biggie hadn't mentioned him in the liner notes of his debut album, even though he was a mentor to Biggie. He questioned who Biggie was surrounding himself with, and he questioned why out of all of Biggie's crew, he was the one who got robbed. Then, in December of 1994, Biggie put out a song called Who Shot Ya? It may be the song with the most unfortunate timing, I think, ever. Biggie said the song wasn't aimed at Tupac at all. It was written before he was shot. But Tupac took it as an insult. When you're Tupac and you hear lines like, who shot you, separate the weak from the obsolete, hard to creep them Brooklyn streets, it's on, F all that bickering beef, I can hear sweat trickling down your cheek. Like, everything feels personal. At this time, Tupac was in prison for the sexual abuse crime he was convicted of. And Justin says when Tupac heard the song's lyrics, he took it as a sign that Biggie was involved with his shooting. Without any real evidence, Tupac went on record with Vibe magazine in 1995, accusing Biggie and Puffy of having something to do with his shooting. What began as a misunderstanding between friends was now spiraling into an unintentional rivalry. Tupac was released from prison almost a year later, and the beef between him and Biggie escalated. In 1996, Tupac dropped a song 
that took the diss track to a whole new level. Tupac releases Hit Em Up. And this song is like a departure from that art form and that it is extremely personal and really offensive. Like, you know, he makes claims that he slept with Biggie's wife. He talks about hurting people. It goes beyond like, I'm a better rapper than you. You're not a good rapper. This is like, if I see you, I'm gonna snatch your ugly ass off the streets. Like it was really a provocation in a way that most of these songs had not been before and much more explicit. So, you know, Hit em Up is sort of like, maybe the pioneer of the really offensive diss track. By this point, the beef had grown beyond just Tupac or just Biggie. It was also about Death Row Records and the West Coast versus Bad Boy Entertainment and the East Coast. Though some in the industry tried to diffuse the escalating tensions. Like legendary producer Quincy Jones. He organized a summit in 1995 to talk about the state of hip-hop. I think that everybody's going to have to take a hard look at how you're going to have to deal, because it's, it's, uh, the people out here are not playing anymore. There's real bullets out there, believe me. Biggie was there with Puffy. Suge Knight, Tupac's label exec, was there too. Speaker after speaker espoused that the, quote, anger unleashed by hip-hop had to be dealt with and steered in a more positive direction. Apparently, at one point, even Puffy tried to squash the beef by trying to explain to Tupac that he and Biggie didn't set him up. None of these efforts worked. Tupac and Biggie were still at odds with each other, and they'd never get the opportunity to reconcile. In September of 1996, Tupac went to a party in Las Vegas with Suge Knight and got shot again. Though this time, he wouldn't survive. Tupac Shakur was riding in this black BMW when the gunfire erupted. Shakur was shot several times in the chest. The driver, his record producer, was grazed in the head. Six days later, Tupac died of his injuries. Faith Evans, Biggie's wife, said Biggie called her the night Tupac died. She said she could tell he was crying through the phone. In the wake of his death, speculation swirled around who did it. If this had all sprung up from the East Coast, West Coast beef that had started with Tupac and Biggie. There were rumors that implicated Biggie and Puffy, that Biggie had supplied the gun, that Puffy had financed the hit. But most of those rumors were just rumors. Evidence that came out later found that Tupac was likely killed over a gang dispute unrelated to Biggie. Biggie didn't go to Tupac's funeral, but early the next year, he did go to L.A. to try to make amends in the wake of Tupac's death, to calm the East Coast-West Coast tensions, and to promote his new album, Life After Death. Here he is in an interview for BET's Rap City. It's a funny thing. I kind of realized how powerful Tupac and I was. You know what I'm saying? Because we two individual people, we waged a coastal beef. You know what I'm saying? He gave this interview in February of 1997, just five months after Tupac's death. Because he can't do that. You know what I'm saying? He can't be the one to be like, yo, I want to squash it because he's gone. So I got to take the weight on both sides. That's why I'm out here. You know what I'm saying? We hit every club. At the end of his California visit, Biggie went to an after party for the Soul Train Music Awards. And what happened next? Well, 
It's the part of Biggie's story we tend to hear about most. Biggie and his friends leave the party in an SUV to go to another spot in the Hollywood Hills. When the SUV stops at a red light, another car pulls up alongside it. There's a video of that night, taken from a fan who was sitting with his friends across the street. In the video, an SUV takes off, and then gunshots ring out. Biggie was hit four times. In the aftermath of Biggie's death, Joel says he doesn't remember folks mourning over Biggie the person, Biggie the friend, because a lot of people and the media were more interested in Biggie the rapper. Music industry sources on the West Coast suspect that Small's death may in some way be payback for the September killing of rap star Tupac Shakur. Now both are dead. The question is, was this feud bad blood enough to cause a deadly confrontation and retaliation? I mean, it was jarring to see a celebrity gunned down like that. And so people were really scared and they didn't know what to blame. And so, of course, it was easy to blame young black men, gang culture, violent lyrics, so on and so forth. There wasn't a lot of fretting about the idea that a 24-year-old father of two had just died. A few days before he died, Biggie gave an interview to journalist Cheo Hodari Coker. He told Coker about his future plans, not just for his music, but also for his toddler daughter and his newborn son. Here's a clip of Coker from Joel's podcast, Slow Burn. He was talking about how he wanted to essentially um, buy a house in Atlanta. And he was talking about how he wanted to give Tiana away at her wedding. And he wanted to see CJ graduate from high school. And, you know, all these different things that he said wasn't going to happen if he was out there while. And, and what he was basically describing was that he realized that he could have a rap persona, but that he could also live a different life that had nothing to do with that rap persona. He basically wanted to be the um, suburban soccer dad that occasionally made hip-hop records. In the years after Biggie's death, people have speculated widely as to why he was killed. Speculation that continues to this day. The LAPD and FBI investigated the events of that night. But each investigation has implicated different actors for their supposed involvement. To this day, the case remains unsolved. No one has ever been charged for Biggie's death. We're at a point where we've spent more time without Biggie than we did with him. And over those years, there's been time to reach a more nuanced understanding about what happened to him who he was, what he was dealing with. We've known the story of Biggie and Tupac, the icons, the stars, the faces of hip-hop's most formative rivalry. But their story is just as much about Chris and Tupac, two people who found success in hip-hop, who found friendship in each other. I think it's a story about two young men who were once friends who felt betrayed by the other. And become enemies with each other. But the stakes were so much different, and the people around them had every incentive to keep that going because it drove record sales, it drove media attention. It was really sort of hard to get back to that really simple, sweet friendship that they established with each other.
A friendship falling apart, it's nothing new. But at age 24 and 25, Biggie and Tupac were just beginning to navigate adulthood, still figuring out their relationships. Under normal circumstances, an argument, a misunderstanding, maybe they could have worked through it. But these weren't normal 20-somethings. These were young artists with outsized pressures, each the center of their own hip-hop machine, each a force. And in death have become legends, symbols of something larger than themselves, characters in a tragic story that gets told over and over again. I mean, hey, we're doing it too. And in a way, when we focus on the lore of these rappers, how they died, we're distracted from the truth of who these men were as people. Here's Justin again. We're not talking about the fact that, you know, Biggie left behind two kids. He left behind countless friends who knew him as Chris. Not Big, but Chris. You know, and they're still dealing with the effects of that a quarter century later. Like, it's not just what the headline says it is. This The story is always, it's always deeper than rap. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Sarah Craig. Next week, we take a look at one of the most famous UFO sightings in history. It's Independence Day. It's Independence Day because we had just saw the movie in 1996. So, of course, this big thing that we're realizing is a craft. The rest of our team is producer Amy Padula. Our associate producers are Julie Carley and Ramoy Phillip. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Katie Feather, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzica. Special thanks to Phil Carson, Cheo Hodari-Coker, the team at Slate's Slow Burn, and to Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, Jen Hahn, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. Big is my dude, Christopher Wallace, that's my best friend, and I miss him. You know, he's real unique what he do, okay? 